Hello and welcome back to Christianese, the episode you've all been waiting for. There's romance, cringiness, and Christian culture that's been popularized by reality TV. Buckle up, because this is the most dramatic episode of Christianese ever. Okay, so picture this. You're sitting in a coffee shop or at brunch with one of your friends just talking about life. And then all of a sudden they start talking about a person. A person that they call my person. You start to panic. Your heart beats faster. Your hands start to get a little sweaty. Surely your friend didn't just refer to their significant other as my person. Maybe their cat's name is my person. Maybe your friend is just a really weird person. But then comes the final blow. The thing that you cannot ignore. Your friend looks you directly in the eye, sheepishly grins, and says that this person, a real person, a person that they've called their person, is the person that they want to do life with. What do you do? You want to pretend that you didn't hear that. But the embarrassment is just too much. So you have to get up and leave. You realize that when you do that, you're going to have to move out of town, enter a witness protection program in Western Montana, pretending you're a fifth generation rancher named Bob Scrantz. Okay, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but weirder things have happened when friends tell friends that they want to do life with someone. Because that phrase, do life, is one of, if not the most cringeworthy things that Christians say. And it is, by far, the most requested topic I've ever had for this podcast. Initially, I wasn't interested in doing this for a podcast because there just doesn't seem to be much to it. Grammatically, it's a nightmare, and it's a more complicated, more confusing way to just say the word live. It kind of sounds like Hollywood's version of caveman talk or even the way that Tarzan talks to Jane. Me Tarzan. You Jane. Jane Tarzan's person. Tarzan Jane do life together. But even though it's a weird way of talking, it's kind of seen as a sweet way to describe your relationship, especially when you're announcing your engagement or bachelor and bachelorette contestants talk about how they decided who got the final rose. We expected there to be bumps, but yeah. she's the person I want to do it with and do life with. And in my mind, I thought, that's it. This is just a weird way that people who are evangelical adjacent talk about early stage marital relationships. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. It's not rooted in Christian theology to any degree that I can tell. So why would I do an episode of Christianese on doing life? My mind was made up. But the strangest thing kept happening. Every time I told someone about this podcast, they would start listing off Christianese that they knew. And without fail, they would always say, doing life. They didn't think this was just a cutesy way of talking about engagement or marriage. They believed it was Christian. So what's going on here? This isn't the normal case of a strong theological term being watered down into a buzzword. It's the exact opposite. This is a buzzword that Christians have given theological meaning and implications to. 
and it reveals a lot about the way we think about our community and marriage. So hold on to your gag reflexes and please excuse me, but try to answer this question on your own. Who do you do life with? It's not such an easy question to answer. The thing for me was, the bar felt really high. There's a lot of people in my community that I live around or do things with, but the people that I do life with, that feels much more intimate. I don't think anybody listening to this would say that their entire church are the people that they do life with. It's restricted to our small group within that church maybe even a group within that small group. Now there's nothing wrong with having a tight-knit group of friends, but our hesitance to do life with a larger group of people is more indicative of our disconnected culture than it is Christ's vision for his church. Now think about the cultural context where you hear the phrase doing life. It's in the very performative spaces of reality TV and social media. The places where people aren't really living because it's not real life, but they're doing life, performing it for an audience. Christian social media does the exact same thing, trying to prove that our marriages are just as awesome as we say they are, that we are doing and posting and saying the right things. We let our lives shine before all men so that we might prove that we're the right kind of person. Our culture struggles with loneliness, idealized romantic relationships, and performative living. Are people in the church so different? I'd argue that we're not. And that in many ways, we expect the exact same thing from our romantic relationships and our communal relationships as everyone else. Do life is just a weird, vague terminology. But don't forget Matthew 12, 34. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words we say don't change what we believe. They reveal what we believe. And if you were to examine the way that we live compared to the rest of our culture, there wouldn't be a huge difference except for where we go on Sunday morning. Here's my hypothesis. Our idea of doing life has to do a lot more with our cultural definitions of community and marriage than the biblical definitions of community and marriage. I'll present my case. Let me just read a passage from Acts chapter 2, a description of the early church community. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe overcame everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. And all who believed were together and held everything in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. 
A community like that sounds pretty radical in today's culture. Shoot, it sounds pretty radical in today's church. Now to be fair, the New Testament doesn't talk about communal living like this outside of Acts 2. And I'm not saying that the normative Christian community sells all their goods and holds everything in common. But are we devoted to the teaching of God's word, fellowship with a diverse community of believers, and devoted to one another like the church of Acts 2? Because those are things you find in every healthy church of the New Testament. No matter where you look in the New Testament, you find churches diverse in age, diverse in background, diverse in race, diverse in politics. Culturally, they have almost nothing in common, but because they have Christ in common, they devote themselves to one another. Now, when you look at the community of people that you do life with, is it diverse in these ways? Or is everyone like you? Is it a place where you come to get filled up and get what you need in a consumeristic way? Or is it where you come to devote yourself to one another? Our culture defines community as something you select that helps define your personal identity. You expect the group to give you what only God can. But God's idea of community is self-giving based on the identity that he's given you. So... Which one's better? If our cultural idea of community is better, then you have to grapple with why everyone in this society feels so lonely. Why in the most connected time in human history, people feel more disconnected than ever. Self-serving community doesn't work. It makes us feel isolated because we're not connected to others. We're trying to absorb something from them. That's why consumeristic church doesn't work. God doesn't call us to go to church so that we might get something from his people. He calls us to his people so that we might give ourselves to them. The New Testament gives us over 30 commands for how we're supposed to live with one another. And every single one of them is self-giving. And what comes from that kind of living? Generosity, joy, celebratory meals, reverence, awe, worship, people coming to know Jesus. There's a clear winner here, and by and large, I think it is true that the Christian view of community is shrunken and less valuable to us and less valuable to the world than God's view of community. But what about marriage? We talk about marriage a lot in the public square. Surely our view and practice of marriage is different than that of our cultures. A 2017 poll from Monmouth University found that two-thirds of American adults believe that they have a soulmate. Not that they've met their soulmate, but that there is a one waiting for them somewhere out in the world that they have to find. 8% of Americans believe they've met their soulmate but aren't in relationship with them, and 19% of Americans think they'll never meet their soulmate. It's pretty bleak. So how do you know if you've found your soulmate? Most people say, when you know, you know. It's a gut-level thing. But this same study from Monmouth University found that gut-level relationships are more emotionally unstable and unlikely to last. This comes at the same time that the majority of Americans believe that cohabiting before marriage is the best way to test for compatibility. But is cohabitation a successful strategy? According to a national report from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, 
Cohabitating couples have a separation rate five times that of married couples. Cohabiting couples are more likely to experience infidelity. Couples who live together before marriage tend to divorce earlier in their marriage than those who didn't. And in both the US and the UK, couples who live together are at a greater risk for divorce than non-cohabiting couples. But that's just our culture. That's not us, right? If you want an answer to that question, all you need to do is sit down with a young, single Christian and ask them about love. I'm willing to guarantee that they'll talk about the one, that one person that God has for them, how to know when they've met that one person. It's stressing soulmate language up in divine sovereignty's clothes. And according to Barna studies, an ever-increasing number of evangelical Christians, particularly millennials, believe that cohabitation is a good idea to test for compatibility. We all know that Christian marriage is profoundly different than our culture's view of marriage, but that's not holding us back for looking for the same thing everyone else is looking for and going about it in the exact same way. The primary problem is that we've bought into the cultural idea that relationships and marriage are meant to fulfill us as individuals. The biggest problem with that is the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated their own body, but he feeds it to take care of it, just as the Lord does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Think about what Paul is saying there. Christian marriage is mutually submissive and entirely focused on the gospel. At the beginning of the Bible, we have the marriage of Adam and Eve. At the end of the Bible, we have the marriage feast of the Lamb of God and his church. And in the middle, here in the church age, we have you and me, regular people, getting married to one another as a living image and symbol of Christ's love for the church and the church's response to Christ. The hope for a Christian married couple is that people would look at them and say, look at the way that they love one another. That's the way that Christ loves the church, and that's the way the church submits to and loves Jesus. When you find, big air quotes, your person that you want to do life with, it's not about you being fulfilled, it's about you giving yourself to that person in the name of the gospel. While we're getting lost in culture's definition of relationships and soulmates, God, again, has a better offer. If God's view of community and God's view of marriage is better than what our culture offers, then why are we turning away from it?
why are we turning to the vague way of doing life, following our gut, our heart, our intuition, whatever you want to call it, and simply seeking fleeting satisfaction in an effort to fulfill some hole in ourselves? Here's my take. We are far more enamored with what our culture has to offer us than what God has to give us. It's easier to get quick validation on Instagram than it is to quietly cultivate virtue and strong relationships. There's a more immediate satisfaction to just getting what we feel like we need out of church than doing the hard work of giving ourselves to the church. We need to seriously rethink and refocus the way that we're doing life. I'm not saying we need to switch up our Instagram accounts from being more of a highlight reel to being more authentic. I think that's just changing the performing genre from comedy to drama. I think this is a place where we need to have more deep, meaningful, biblical, theologically rooted conversations with greater moral imaginations. In a time of loneliness, performative living, and idealized relationships, we have got to realign the way that we're living with the way that God calls us to live. The church, the people of God need to exhibit a greater story, a greater option for the world around us. God has shown us a better way of living. We just have to do it.